be willing to try something, be willing to maybe look a little silly when you do it, but you also never know when that will just randomly work out in a really beautiful way. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm needing Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. Friends, if you are a creative who feels stuck or feels jealous or feels like, who am I to fill in the blank? Or you feel like you have been rejected and you don't know how to get over the hurdles and to keep on going. You will love this episode. I talked to a writer from my very own community, Kelly Q. Anderson, and she talks about her great successes being published in places like the New York Times and getting really incredible spots at writing residencies. And she also talks about rejections and the book that didn't work out or the agent thing that fell through and how she just keeps on going in the face of adversity. It's such an inspiring episode. You will love it. And if you are a writer who is looking for inspiration and community, you are always welcome to join my Writer Workout community. It's a fabulous membership group of writers who come together from all over the world on Zoom every Monday at noon central. It's writers of all genres, writers of all levels. And I give prompts and craft talks to get you writing and get you inspired. It's amazing what has come out of writer workout. People have written chapters of their novels and memoirs. People have written essays and short stories. And you're going to hear Kelly talk about how supportive and inspiring that community has been for her, how some of her pieces that have been published have come out of writer workout, which just thrills me because that's exactly why I created the community. I was basically in a workout class years ago and I was thinking, wow, isn't it interesting how they have classes to strengthen our muscles, but they don't have regular workouts for writers, for their creativity to keep that strong and motivated and inspired. And hence writer workout was born. <laughs> so I love leading the group. And if that sounds something that would be interesting to you for inspiration and support and accountability, you can check out more at NadineKennyJohnstone.com. Without further ado, here is my interview with Kelly Q. Anderson. All right. Hi, everyone. Today, I have a special guest on with me. Her name is Kelly Q. Anderson, and she has been a part of our writing community for quite a while now. And the reason why I wanted to have her on is because she is living proof of wonderful writing success. <laughs> so she has had pieces published in places like 
the New York Times <laughs> and Atticus Review and many others. And she has gotten many writing residencies. She is also the VP of OCWW, which is Off-Campus Writers Workshop in Illinois. And we'll talk about that. But most importantly, I think my biggest reason for wanting to have Kelly on is because she's a really good soul. And I love the way that she interacts with the people in our writing community and is just so supportive of not only her own work, but of other people's work as well. So welcome, Kelly. Oh, goodness. Thank you so much, Nadine. What a beautiful introduction. I am just so humbled by those nice words. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? It's like you you were just going about life and being yourself for the last couple of years. And I've been witness to how much goodness you put into our writing community, especially when on Mondays, we all meet together for writer workout. And at the end, there's time to go into breakout rooms and share work. And I can just see how really supportive you are of the other women that you're in group with. And I always know that whoever is in group with you is going to be given really supportive, encouraging feedback and that you'll all inspire each other. So I'm so happy to have you on. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So first I wanted to start off with a random question. What does Q stand for? Ah, this is a question that I have gotten for the majority of my life. So <laughs> as you can imagine, that is a very unique middle initial. And so I learned from a very young age that people were sort of drawn to the uniqueness of my middle name. So mm -hmm. anytime you fill out a form, anytime you're registering for school, oftentimes your middle initial has always been required. So I would have teachers constantly say, before we get started, um, Kelly, can you just tell me what does the Q stand for? And Q stands for Quinn. It is my grandmother's uh, maiden name. Mm -hmm. It is a family name. And although it's it's gained a lot of popularity, I would say over the last um, maybe five to seven years growing up, that was a, a middle name that nobody had. And I learned that once people learned what it meant, they used it all the time, meaning that they would call me Kelly Quinn, they would call me Kelly Q, that they found a way to sort of work it into everything. Mm -hmm. And when I got married, and put my writing out there as more of a professional career, I just figured, you know, there's a lot of Kelly Andersons out there and that's a great name and I'm not trying to take anything away from that, but I knew that the Q gave me a lot more memorable distinction, just like it did when I was a young kid. Um, it's still, I still get that question. I still answer it all the time and I'm sort of a stickler for it now because when people then see that they can sort of go, oh yeah, no, I know I've read something by her before. Oh, I recognize that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a wonderful tip for anyone who's trying to establish themselves as an artist or creative in the world is thinking about that uniqueness. What about you stands out that might be memorable? Like whenever I talk about your writing, I always say Kelly Q. Anderson. <laughs> I, yeah. always, I always bring in the Q. So Kelly, tell our listeners where in the world you are and kind of catch us up to speed of your writing journey till now. Sure. I live in the suburbs just outside of Chicago. I live in Glencoe. I've lived here for the past 10 years. And prior to that, I lived in Chicago and was blissfully happy in the city. 
my ties to writing start from a very young age. It was always something that I wanted to do. And growing up, I just continued to put myself in a variety of writing classes. And so when I entered high school, I was on the newspaper staff. And that's when I learned a lot about opinion writing, reporting. I learned how to develop my own film. I learned how to create and sell advertising. I learned the whole Adobe Creative Suite. And when I went to college, I majored in journalism. And at the time, I think that not that I had this idea that I wanted to be a reporter, I was maybe probably thinking more along the lines of broadcast journalism. And I went to the University of Iowa. It was just a marvelous, wonderful, creative place to be if you were a writer. I mean, I took magazine writing, I took PR writing, I did tons of creative writing workshops, which were really where I probably flourished the most. And when I graduated, I sort of had all these ideas of what I wanted to do for a job. And the more that I went on those job interviews, the more I felt like, oh, no, no, <laughs> clearly I've got the wrong idea of what I think I want to do. And I ended up actually in commercial real estate, I ended up in brokerage. Eventually, I moved over to the marketing side of that, which was a lot more writing centric. I wrote requests for proposals. I, I wrote, you know, big presentations, correspondence, bios, case studies, web content. I had a big change in my personal life when I got pregnant with my son. At the time that I was on maternity leave, my real estate company that I worked for got bought, became a publicly traded company, merged with another company. And at that point, we had also moved from Chicago to the suburbs. So mm. at a time when I sort of was trying to make sense of my entire world being rocked, not just from the birth of a child, transplanting myself, new changes in my professional life, I stepped away from commercial real estate and I began to just focus more on writing. So while I had a baby, I did a ton of freelance work. I wrote for magazines, websites, blogs radio. I was a newspaper columnist, bi-weekly columns for six years for a local newspaper on the North Shore. As soon as the pandemic hit, advertising dollars dried up. Mm -hmm. This is very common all, you know, everywhere, but a ton of local newspapers ceased publication almost immediately. And so an identity that I very much had tied to being a columnist was gone almost instantly. And at that point, I really sort of had to sit back and say, well, what now? I've done this for so many years. I'm, I had been sort of having my foot in and out of the world of off-campus writers workshop. And that's when I really decided to get way more involved in what they offer. Meaning that I told myself, you know, every Thursday that off-campus writers workshop has a presenter come in, I'm registering for every workshop, even if it's completely out of my genre, even if it's about middle grade writing, even if it's about Pantoom poetry, I'm going to just keep staying in the writing world. And I offered one day to run their social media. And then the next thing you know, I was invited to join the board. And then the next thing you know, I sort of got slid into a role of director of promotions. And now I'm the vice president. And so each little step that I took in that process got me a little more brave to take the next step. And I joined your writing group, Nadine, when you came to speak. The first time I saw you at Off-Campus Writers Workshop, you came in person. I bought a copy of your book of This Much, I'm Sure. And during the break, you signed it for me and we talked just briefly. It was a lovely presentation, lovely conversation. And maybe the next time that I went to your workshop, you came to OCWW on Zoom during the pandemic. The workshop was on mining your memories, which was perfect for me because I'm a nonfiction writer. So during that workshop, you said, I have a regular weekly meetup 
if anyone wants to join this writing group, go to my website and check it out. And so that was, again, my next step at just doing more, like being brave enough to do more in that world, to take on more work. And so I've been a part of your workshop now for, as you said earlier, a good period of time, still am really actively involved in off-campus writers workshop and have had some great success over the past year with residencies and fellowships and some writing accolades. Mm, So much to unpack. First of all, I love how you talk about shifts in identity. I think this is something I talk a lot about on Heart of the Story. I don't know anyone who hasn't had a major shift in identity, at least over the past two years. And, And if you've lived a few decades on this earth, you've had major shifts in identity. So I want to go back to these different kind of milestone moments where it's like you think things are going to be one way and then life is like, you know, so you're, you're newly pregnant and everything changes for you professionally, personally, the place that you live in. What are some things that help you during those times of great shift and change, whether it be mindset or support or books, like what is it that helps you not just go into a tizzy? I try to remind myself to be okay with discomfort. Hmm. I, I try to remind myself that the only way is through. I certainly have my moments of wanting to get into bed and pull the covers over my head. But the reality is I'm, I have two young children and I'm trying to show them that disappointment is a reality of life. Mm. Um, That there's times where you put forth a lot of effort and maybe your heart is going to get broken in the process of things. And sometimes that's with a writing rejection. Sometimes, you know, someone's trying out for a basketball team. Sometimes you're going for a promotion. Sometimes you just have a goal and you might fall short of it, but disappointment is very much a part of life. So I I remind myself to sort of sit in the discomfort, but I also think to myself, what would I tell my children? You know, and not only that, how am I going to model how to get out of this? Because I probably sat for a, a couple of months really stewing and feeling deeply sorrowful about the loss of that newspaper, the loss of that column before sitting back and going, it's not coming back. So now I really need to focus on what can be ahead for me. And if it's not this, I need to be willing to take a different path. Even if I don't know what that is, can I sign up for a class? Can I start Googling writers open mics or at the time of a pandemic, is there something on zoom that I can do, but what can I put myself in to try? It doesn't have to be a success or a win right off the bat, but again, the only way is through. Mm. And I think it's so reassuring to anyone who's listening, who feels that way, that I thought things were going to look one way, but now they're looking the other. And what do I do? And just this advice to take a small step, to put yourself out there, to take a new class, to join a new community. These are seemingly small things, but they make a huge impact. And I have a little piece of paper, a little like quote I wrote to myself a while back when I was facing a rejection. And it says, not closed doors, my love, but open windows. <laughs> yeah, because it's like we need to. I, I think some of the most amazing people I know are people like yourself who are resourceful. That it doesn't mean that you don't get down, you still do, but you 
you find a new way and you try out something differently and you just say, let's see, let's see what happens. And you have to do that. And I think we have talked a little bit about some of the writing success that I've had, but I also think it's important for people to know that I have not always gotten it right, that I've gotten rejected plenty of times. I won a fellowship and some residencies. I definitely had a few that were rejected. I've had a children's book that got an agent, got sent around to all the publishing houses and no one picked it up. Mm -hmm. And right after that, the agent said, you know, I'm actually not interested in representing children's literature anymore. So I not only like lost that book, I lost that agent almost exactly at the same time and sort of then had to pivot right on to the next thing. And so we don't always know what's going to work out, but be willing to try something, be willing to maybe look a little silly when you do it, but you also never know when that will just randomly work out in a really beautiful way. Mm. And these are the things that we don't talk about, or at least outward facingly people don't know about. They only see the highlight reel. They only see the publication. They think, oh my gosh, she was published in the New York Times. So it's refreshing when we're able to share these moments of, okay, this didn't work out. And yet I kept trying as someone who works with so many women, like the the thing I stress the most is that The writers I know who have been published the most have been rejected the most. It's just how it works. So I so encourage people who have just gotten that rejection and just lost that agent or just lost what they thought was going to be a deal or they applied to a residency they wanted so badly they didn't get it to keep on going. So let's talk about some of these things. First of all, OCWW is amazing. Shout out to them. I had the great honor of presenting with them a couple of times, but I absolutely love that you work so closely because I think one of the biggest things that I always feel when I walk into that room, especially the in-person spaces, you just get to see a, a huge room of people who are thrilled to be there. They're coming on their own accord on Thursday mornings and just soaking up whatever writing wisdom and they are communicating with each other and it's such a good community. So tell us a bit more about why you kind of steered towards them and what you're getting out of it. Well, OCWW, it's really a chance to learn from the best. And by that, I mean the presenters, By that, I mean the writing community. You are doing yourself a great disservice if you think that writing means that you have to sit in a room alone with your laptop and crank out um, the next great American novel. Um, The writing community is this incredible resource, this warm, encouraging mass of people that not only wanna see you succeed, These are people that want to blurb your book. These are people that want to recommend your book for their book club. Or these are people that want to tap you on the shoulder and say, have you heard about this? This seems like something you might be into. And so Off Campus Writers Workshop, it's been around for 75 years. It meets every Thursday at the Community House in Winnetka. And it's a very warm and nurturing environment. If you are someone that is tiptoeing your way into writing, or if you've written several things and you're just sort of looking for some regularly scheduled writing time in your life, 
OCWW is a great place to start. And it was started by a fantastic group of women who weren't necessarily welcomed on campus at Northwestern. Many of them were spouses of professors and writing instructors. So they began to meet informally. And over time, their group grew and grew and grew. They opened it up to anyone who wanted to join then could join. The legendary writer Scott Tarot, his mother was one of the founding members of this group. So he has a strong affection to OCWW and he wrote the foreword for our anthology, Turning Points. So OCWW is not only near and dear to my heart, I welcome the chance that it's introduced me to people like you, Nadine, that it's allowed me to connect with other great writers like Rebecca Mackay and Vu Tran, Abby Jeannie, Caitlin Horrocks. There's just incredible people that come through there and every single one of them want to see you succeed as a writer. Mm. First of all, I did not know the backstory of why it's called off campus. You know, I literally just thought, oh, because it's not on a campus, but on in a community center. So, you know, you've just won over my heart because you know what a supporter of women I am. So it's like, okay, we can't meet on campus. We will meet with each other off campus. And this is what I love for us as a community to think about is, okay, what doors have closed in front of you? Then what groups can you find on your own? That I mean, that's how Writer Workout was born. It started in March of 2020. It was like, okay, we can't meet in person, then we will still meet. And not only will we meet, but we will have people from all over the US and from other countries. And we'll meet every week like this, this, closure that we're seeing all over the world will not be a closure of creativity. And this is what amazes me about like OCWW or any other group. It's we take the setbacks and we figure out a new way. And you've done this again and again. And so I want you to talk a bit about your path to publishing your New York Times, beautiful story, the Museum of Childhood. Talk about that that road. Sure. So I will say I drew inspiration. Honestly, Nadine, from our writer workout, there's another writer who has published a tiny love story. And she's warm and she's a brilliant writer. And she wrote about grief in such a tender and loving way. And so I remembered thinking, oh, I, I was inspired by her. And I thought I would love to get there. I would love to do something like that. And so let's just pull the curtain way back here and put right out front that I was rejected a couple of times from the New York Times. So you don't really get into the New York Times until you've been rejected by them. Mm -hmm. And the New York Times is so inundated that you don't even get a form rejection. You don't really get anything. (laughs) You just never hear from them, which You know, I can't say that that's my favorite part of the process, but what it did was it forced me to dig even deeper within myself and go, if that piece of writing wasn't good enough, I'm going to take it further. And what inspired the Museum of Childhood was a spring break trip that I took with my children. My son is 10 and my daughter is seven. And we were walking around Santa Monica, California. And we were having the most marvelous trip and we went to go cross the street. And I realized my son just quickly looked both ways and walked. And it was this moment of realizing that I, he wasn't looking to hold my hand, that this feeling of just sort of seeing actual proof in front of me that he was growing up and moving into a new stage of sort of adolescence. 
And I had this softness about me that I remembered sitting in the car later on and going, I love where we're at right now. I love this moment. I'm enjoying all of this with my family. And yet there is a part of me that wishes that there was a museum for childhood, that I could somehow revisit some of those more tender parts that are now already gone. Mm. Now, what stayed with me in that moment was the title, the Museum of Childhood. So over and over in my head, I'm just thinking Museum of Childhood. Just that idea was so powerful that I knew if that was a title, if I could do something with that, the title would be enough to make someone want to read the next sentence. And sometimes we write in reverse, meaning that I've written something I love. And then I'm going, what's the title? How, how does this draw someone in? And so again, having been rejected probably three times, I think from tiny love stories, I had sort of trained my brain to go, you know what, if this is really a goal of mine on the first of every month, I'm going to try to be drafting a one 100 word story, right? I'm going to come up with a draft on the first of each month and send it off to the New York Times. And I'm going to put a calendar reminder because I'm type A, I do really well on a schedule, mm-hmm. calendar reminder on the first of the month that we're submitting to the New York Times tiny love story. So I think another thing that I grossly underestimated in the past was how strong the visual component is to getting into the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Because when Mia Lee, who is the editor of Tiny Love Stories, when she emailed me and she said, we want to publish it, The only edit that she made to my story was she added in a line about a child napping on the parent's chest. And it's because one of the photos that I submitted, you are allowed to submit a total of five, was a picture of my daughter sleeping on me. Mm. And so when she read this story, she connected with the story and that photo, it took her deeper into the story. And so what it reminded me of was when we are submitting our work out there, think about the work as a whole. Think about the title. Is It's so exquisitely beautiful that you have to drop everything and read it right now. Are you submitting photos that just take someone's breath away? Are you really pushing your work to be that good? Because I wrote a lot of bad drafts before I wrote the good drafts. And I submitted things that were maybe not as brave or not, that didn't go as deep as this went. And when this, when I sent this piece off, it's almost like I knew before the acceptance even came in, I knew that they couldn't deny this. I knew it was one of the best things that I had ever written. And more so over, I knew that this was an enduring piece of writing. So Nadine, I don't know if you have this, but something that's always worried me was what have I written that my children can hang on to? Like, what have I written that they can read it now? Mm. They can read it 20 years from now. If my grandchildren one day read something that they will know exactly who I am and they will know something about me. And when I wrote the Museum of Childhood, I felt like I could breathe a little bit because I knew that this would endure. Okay, well, I almost cried about four times in your (laughs) response for various reasons. So, okay, let's break this down. First of all, just the explanation of the process is so helpful. Knowing how it went from just like an inspiration to a seed to drafts to different goals to on and on. 
the author that you were talking about who has also been published from our community, her name is Barbara Phillips, and you should definitely check out her beautiful tiny love story. Yes, it was so inspiring to make other people want to write. And tiny love stories, for anyone who hasn't read, is, as Kelly said, a 100-word story. There's so little space to impact a reader. So you have to pay attention to every word. The title is crucial. The picture that accompanies the piece is crucial. And when I read Museum of Childhood for the first time, I wept because it's so connected with how I feel right now as a parent. Our son is nine. So exactly as you were talking about, he's on this cusp of of independence that I am so proud of and so threatened by. (laughs) I, um, there are different moments in recent life that I can see it happening. So for example, we used to always jump on our trampoline together in the backyard. And it was like just my favorite connecting moment because he's got so much energy and it's like we were in this cocoon space where nothing could interrupt us and he could get his wiggles out and I could be playful and he could see a different side of me and we'd sneak in like really deep conversations without him even realizing it. And when we moved, we packed away our trampoline and we're in a rental right now. And as I look around for where we'll set more permanent roots, every yard, I'm looking for a space that has enough space for a trampoline. And yet I fear by the time we put it back up, he'll be closer to 10. And will he want to jump with me? You know, these are the things. And so when I read Museum of Childhood, It reminds me of so many moments when Jamie, my husband, and I, we sit and we look at the pictures in our phone and you know how the memories pop up and we just look, we go, oh my God, remember when he did this cute thing and that cute thing. And it's like, you just want to preserve it so badly because you're already so nostalgic for it. And they're still young, but that moment is no longer. I listened to someone, I forget, on a podcast who talked about oftentimes we we aren't aware of the last time that we're going to do something. Like we didn't realize that, oh, that was the last time, you know, your son might want to jump on a trampoline with you, or you didn't know that was the last time of this or that. And so this preservation is so eminent in your story. And I'm going to have you read it out loud in just a second. And you talk about legacy, essentially. What is something that you would want to leave behind or have out there that your kids could look at and and not only be proud of it, but see themselves and connect? And it's like you are leaving a legacy behind. And since my father's passing last April, I've thought about it again and again. And it's one of the driving reasons why I still have this podcast is because I feel like one day when I'm not here, there will be audio of what I cared about and there will be books of what I cared about. So no one could, no one will second guess that I love them deeply. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I would say it's, it's important for me to see storytelling get its due. Storytelling connects all of us. Storytelling is intergenerational. Storytelling is one of the oldest art forms and one of the most dynamic, whether you are 
listening to a podcast, you're watching a Netflix show, you're reading a book, you're like my kids who love graphic novels. Storytelling, it's an art form. I, I could not be prouder to be a storyteller. And some of the hardest writing and some of the bravest writing that I've put out there, I know is going to be the most enduring because it draws us in. You know, there's a reason why the Museum of Childhood did so well. It's because a lot of parents read that and thought, that's how it feels. That's how it feels to watch a child grow up and slowly move away from me, knowing that that's a completely natural thing. But many of us didn't think to make that a museum exhibit. Mm. And we talk a little bit about the piece on the Atticus Review, The Ghost Can Stay. That's a story about a ghost that lives in my 100-year-old house. There's not a lot of people that are sort of welcome to the idea of sharing their home with a ghost. And so for me, some of the bravest writing and storytelling that I can put out there is to make people think about something in a way that they hadn't before. And I want you to think about my stories long after you stepped away from them. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes to get my writing to that point, it usually takes a lot of drafts and I have to be willing and vulnerable enough to let it be edited mm -hmm. and not get in my own way with that. Um, the Museum of Childhood and The Ghost Can Stay were both very thoughtfully edited. And it's the reason why both did very well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, let's hear first the Museum of Childhood, and then we'll get to The Ghost Can Stay. The Museum of Childhood. I sometimes wish for a Museum of Childhood, a sanctuary that holds the matted frog blanket, the plastic golf club, the sugar milk exhale of slumber. I wish for a shelf to store nuzzled neck rolls or a podium to place the giddy shrieks that come from running in a donut costume. Heavy shoulder rides and naps on my chest don't happen anymore, but my body remembers. I wish for a museum of childhood forever open so that I could sit on a bench and just marvel at the ache. Mm, that last line, oh, the whole thing. There are multiple parts of it that showcase different elements of craft. One, there's beautiful alliteration. Two, I love that kind of the sweet milk, like the exhale. I have to get it. The um, re oh, sugar, sugar milk exhale, of sugar slumber. milk exhale of slumber. When mm -hmm. I read that, I was like, "What an original way!" And yes, the description is completely on point. But what an original way to express it! I love when I read something where I nod along and I go, "Yes, yes, that's it." And I've never heard it explained like that. Mm -hmm. And then imagining just the image of a mother kind of sitting on a bench and looking at this exhibit and marveling, but also feeling the deep ache. Any writing that can both make me feel heart open and also heart achy at the same time, I think is the best kind of writing. And so when you wrote this, like what was, what was your process? Did you write it in just one, you know, um, session and then take a little time and go back? What's your process like? I did actually write this when I was on spring break. So when my children went to sleep, it was just a late night. I think maybe we had been at Disneyland during the day. I wrote it when we came back to the hotel room and everything in there is really deeply personal. So my children see themselves 
in my writing all the time. My son was never one for stuffed animals, but he had a frog blanket that he cherished. There was a pink donut costume that both of my children wore for Halloween throughout the years. And my son had a blue plastic golf club that came everywhere, you know, for from like age two to four. So there were these markers of, of their childhood, their toddler years. And even though a reader might not have that specific example, perhaps the choice of those details made them sit back and go, oh, right, this is like the time that my daughter was obsessed with penguins. Like, oh, this was the time that we couldn't go anywhere, you know, without those Dov Pilkey graphic novels. <laughs> There's those little markers. And sometimes we just forget about them. And that's not because they weren't important, but we're juggling so many hats and so many details of children and the chaos that they orbit around our lives, that the idea of even just sitting down to think about those specific things is such a luxury. And it's, it, again, that the word marvel, very few parents get a chance to just sit down and marvel at that and to sort of give yourself even like the minute it takes to read this story, to marvel at a couple of those things that have just stayed with you throughout your child's life. Mm, yes. I think every time we move, because we've moved so often, it's like I'm going through these things and they are like the blue golf club or the frog thing, you know, and I can't bear to throw them away because they are part of the exhibit. And I'll never forget when we were trying to get Gio off of his pacifier. Oh, he loved his pacifier. And every night before bed, he would have the pacifier and it would soothe him. And so first I tried cutting the tip, as they say, so then it won't have the same suction effect. Oh, he did not have anything to do with that. He threw a big fit. He threw the oh, is <laughs> broken. I want my passy. And then even sadder would be, Mama, I want my passy to relax. Like he knew it was oh. a soothing thing. So I kept reading about it. And one of the books said, if you have him exchange the pacifier for some other soothing comfort, like a blanket or a stuffy, it'll help ease the transition. So we said, okay, buddy, tomorrow's the day where we're going to change, you know, trade the, the passy for a stuffy or something where it will take you to the store and you can choose what soft, relaxing thing you want to exchange it for. He chooses a gigantic plastic bulldozer. <laughs> <laughs> And every night he took the bulldozer to bed. Took the bulldozer and it helped him relax. Exactly. So I think parents everywhere can relate to that story. And, and even beyond, like those who don't have kids can still understand how we hold on to things or they think about the things their parents held on to about them, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to hear one more story, which is one of my favorites that you've written. I, I can only ever think of it as the Bruce story, Yeah, but the title is so captivating. It's called The Ghost Can Stay, and it was published in Atticus Review, and I'd love for you to read it out loud. Sure. The ghost can stay. The ghost is something the kids can have. It's preferable to the hamster they've been begging for. I have grown to expect him shifting on the hallway carpet or reaching into the attic's cedar closet. I appreciate that he doesn't pester, that he prefers to check on my children, making himself visible to sets of eyes younger than five. It was my daughter who saw him first. Her whisper fell in my lap. 
Who's that guy? Her chubby finger pointed down the vacant beige hallway. Confusion puddled in my feet, anchoring me to the floor. I stared intently down the hall, but no eyes stared back. The only hint was the geometric painting on the wall, the one the previous owner left behind when he moved out. It was Bruce. It could only be Bruce. Right before we moved in, I came across his toupee, a gray feathery plop discarded in a bathroom drawer. It softened me, this ugly rug, reminded me that we can grip our hands around youth and vanity all the way up till age 82. But at the end of the day, we bury our secrets and balding woes in the same room where we pee. Perhaps he perches in the halls to recall his four children who scampered up the stairs after Shabbat. Perhaps he lingers in the foyer to remember fundraising for the local theater or doffing a badger hat with a badger grin. Perhaps he is one of us now in the pile of our shoes at the door, in the slump of our sofa cushion, or at my shoulder while I chew Saturday's bagel, always with Novalox. Do I love Novalox or is the house feeding me? An old house keeps old wounds, but I like to think that his spirit is a glossy honey yellow, a shimmering wave of trees moving through autumn, the first regular trickle of coffee in the pot at 7 a.m. Reliability is everything to me. Sure, he likes to hover, but I've never known him to haunt. I don't dread his aimlessness. I don't fret over the black skeleton key that I found by accident when wiping down a door's thick trim. I don't frighten over the razor blades that suddenly appeared on floors squarely in the center of clean rooms. Sharp things make me sharper. I don't fear the staunchness, certain as sunrise, that his wife passed away in my bedroom, wafer thin and sinking. Perhaps he is content to whisper within my wallpaper and perch silently in my armchair. I notice him. I do not notice him. I forget about everything because soccer is about to start and cleats are missing and someone has to bag the snacks. 11 months after our escrow, after our mutual handshake, his skin, the paper of envelopes, he drifted into death. I learned about it in the checkout line at World Market. I was buying a miniature cheese grater when suddenly everything felt unfair. He had just escaped this enormous house, this treasure chest of decades and dinner parties. He had pivoted, widowed and determined. He had dared to keep going. It's understandable. It's understandable that he now seeks bickering children and tables warm with casseroles. The chaos of my family is constant. We twirl on every squeaky floorboard. We fill the bathtubs to the brim. We paint walls that he used to touch, laugh where he used to laugh. It's understandable why he filled his home's nooks and surfaces with small, fat televisions. In every room, even in the closet, even in the closet, the woolly screen must have buzzed while he dressed, his 82-year-old arms the only moving limbs 
in a five bedroom floor plan. I can understand. I can hope that right now is right for now. Every time he shows up, he says, I was here, I was here, I was here. Every time I respond, I know, Bruce, I know. When we blow out birthday candles, I imagine him huffing and puffing adjacent, clapping when the flame is extinguished. Beautiful. I love this piece so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> There's so much to love about it. The title right away shows that there is a shift in the typical perspective. We so fear ghosts or we fear who haunts us. And the idea that the ghost is welcome right away made me want to keep reading because I wanted to know why. Why is Bruce welcome in this home? And then throughout it, I just felt so specifically attached to the characters because we get to see how Bruce lived and how his home was once filled with all of this beautiful chaos and memories. And then it got really quiet and the only noise, his own arms or the TV. And so when, when I saw that shift of, I can understand why he'd want to be here in the chaos, the beautiful chaos of my home. And that's why he's welcome. It just felt so heartwarming because at first you're going, oh goodness. So he appears and then there's razor blades sometimes. <laughs> and it's like, who, why would he be welcome? And then we get this entire shift that makes it all completely understandable. And that repetition, I understand, I understand is so heartwarming. I love this piece. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah. So just tell us the kind of thought process of when did you go, you know what, I want to write about Bruce. <laughs> so I did write about, I wrote about Bruce in our Monday writer workout. And I've shared in that group before that one of the most inspiring things for me that draws a lot of writing is fog. So if I wake up and if there's a very like rich and dense fog outside, that really sort of gets my mind going. I had always been a child that was fully aligned with Halloween and ghosts and like the art of a ghost story. Those things were always so intriguing to me. And even as an adult, that that is still there. And so when, when we had a, a Monday noon writer workout, I had woke up that morning, had those great spooky feelings. And I think that was probably right around the time that I had found a key I found a skeleton key in my bedroom. And at this point I had lived at my house for a couple of years and, you know, we write, I, I say, we, I write about Bruce and Bruce is a really lovely man. Bruce raised four children in this home. He was a philanthropist. He was somebody who loved art. He had a collection of ceramic art everywhere. And he was delighted that there was a young family moving into this home and the more that we got closer along in our escrow process, there was an element that saddened me greatly to think of an 82-year-old man living alone in this grand old house, the house that's a Tudor-style home. It's 100 years old. I, my husband and I joke that there's not a straight line in the house. Everything creaks and you know repairs take forever. And it's still just a house that we love. And we so enjoyed the process of working with Bruce and getting to know him a little bit. And he passed away 11 months after we moved in. 
And I remembered feeling like that was just so unfair, like that Bruce deserved way more than that. And then a few mysterious things started happening around the house, but it was never a cause for concern. And I know when people hear razor blades that they, that scares them because they think of that as a weapon. But to me, I looked at that as mischief. Like I would walk into a room and see something square in the middle of the room. You know, it can't fall off a shelf and someone doesn't go around dropping razor blades or placing, you know, keys. So I would see these little acts of mischief that made me think, oh, he just wants to be noticed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll never forget just sort of having my one and a half year old daughter on my hip and seeing her point down a hallway and asking me who the guy was. And I'm looking and I don't see anybody, but yet in my head, I'm like, well, I feel like dogs and children and animals have always been finely attuned to the goings on and the unknown happening in the world, right? That sometimes they see things that we adults are perhaps a bit too busy to see. And maybe I let my imagination get really carried away with that because I just sort of loved the idea that I was going to write this story, but the slant would be that I don't mind. I don't mind that he's here. I don't mind that I only occasionally get a glimpse of it. We've never been haunted or terrified in this house. If anything, we've just been endeared to somebody that lived a really long and beautiful life here. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a hundred year old house, you have to imagine that this house has really seen some things over those years. And sometimes there can be a little bit of unsettled energy, but oftentimes I like to think, oh no, think of all the celebrations here. Mm -hmm. right? Um, Think of the holidays, think of the meals around the table, think about times where people lit candles and exchange presents, just think about times where people might have been happiest. And so when I pitch this story, and I have to give credit where it's due, there's a lovely editor, her name is Rachel, I think it's Lavadier, and she is the editor of Creative Nonfiction at the Atticus Review. The original title of this story was I Hope the Ghost Stays, Uh and she had suggested the ghost can stay, and she gave me carte blanche to make the decision, but I ended up coming away from some of her edits and saying, no, you're right. That is the better title, and this story, Atticus Review ended up nominating it for Best of the Net. And for, for those that don't know Best of the Net, literary journals, their editors pick two pieces of fiction, two pieces of nonfiction, and a total of six poems, and they nominate them for these Best of the Net awards. And that's it. You can nominate only those select few. And I had gotten word that they had nominated this for a creative nonfiction best of the net, which just made me not only insanely proud, it was one of those things where I'm like, oh yeah, here's another great benefit to working with a great editor was when somebody really loves and cares about your work, treats it like their own. Rachel really helped me flesh out this story and make it shine the way that it does shine. Mm. What I'm hearing again and again is how important revising and editing is. And I can sing those praises all day long, but it's so helpful to get reinforcement from another writer about how crucial the revising and the editing is and being open to feedback from other people. And in both cases that you just talked about, you showed how just even a tiny edit can make a big difference, but you have to be open to it as a writer. Yeah. You have to get out of your own way. I'm very stubborn. And so I, (laughs) there's a part of me, you know, that if I, and thankfully some of the editors I've worked with have said, you know, if you do feel really strongly about some things, we can keep them. And my advice is one, 
sleep on your edits. You give yourself one full day. Your edits are, are going to hit differently when you've let 24 hours go by and when you've had a decent sleep. Yeah. So don't let your feelings get hurt. Take a night, sleep on it. And usually the next day you sort of have a fresh perspective. But the idea is that someone is, they're taking a look from the outside in. And if someone cares about my work enough to make some you know, thoughtful suggestions, those thoughtful suggestions make all the difference. These, these two pieces that we talked about today are proof of that. Such a good point about the time. I always say that time is the best editor because you do look at something when a day or a week or a month has passed, you look at it as if you haven't written it almost. And so I try to do as much as I can to create that outsiderness when I read something after an edit where it might be time passing printing it out rather than looking at it on screen, having somebody else read it out loud, like anything that helps it be outside my own body as not this thing I just wrote that is so precious, but more of this thing that I can look at from a craft perspective and go, what is working? I I spend a lot of time walking around my house, reading my work out loud. You have to, I'm a firm believer. It makes you a better reader there's a fantastic flash writer named Amber Sparks. And she talks about how like, read it out loud until you get to the parts that are so boring each time. And you will just know what to cut. You'll know what to change, but you've got to read your work aloud. That helps a lot. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. That's when you know exactly what you talked about. I call it cam, cut, add, move. What do you cut? What do you add? What do you move? Um, So one last thing I want to talk about because we have had so many good different points of conversation here is, you know, how much I support writers taking time for their writing. One of the biggest reasons why I lead retreats is because I know how beneficial it is to step away from your own life, to be in a new place with other people, to have time dedicated to yourself and to your craft, whether that be through a retreat, a residency, anything to get away and and step outside of your life and remember your creativity and remember yourself, but also expose yourself to new inspiration and new people and new places. So you've had multiple kind of residency situations. So you've had the Writers' Colony in Arkansas, and then you have a fellowship coming up at Porches, and then another residency in Kentucky coming up. So why to you are these residencies so crucial? You know, when I returned from Arkansas, I had gone to Eureka Springs, Arkansas for two weeks. And when I came back, the biggest takeaway that I had was I really need to keep sending myself into the unknown. And I want to be careful sort of with how people interpret that. But the reality is, is that I probably naively looked at Arkansas and not once was I thinking, yeah, I should go and visit Arkansas. That should be on my to-do list. I mean, I probably thought, what value does Arkansas hold? Why would I go and visit Arkansas? And lo and behold, I get this residency that's in Arkansas. And I quickly realized just how much of a like big, dumb idiot that I had been when I show up and it's this beautiful place full of mountains and hills and just wonderfully welcoming people, a wonderfully rich and historic town. Eureka Springs is, it's amazing. If, if you haven't been or haven't heard about it, 
I just remembered going there and thinking, how wrong was I about this? And this is a place that fully welcomed me and nurtured me creatively for two full weeks. And it made me sit back and go, how many other times in life have I discounted something because I thought I had that all figured out? Mm -hmm. And so when I came home from Arkansas, um, one, I had written an entire book (laughs) of flash creative nonfiction, which is when that was the goal. So I went there, goal achieved, right? Check the box. Great. But what I came back with was this newfound understanding of, oh no, I need to keep doing this. And I need to keep sending myself into places I haven't been, be and talk among writers I've never met, allow myself to absorb a new environment because that too will also dramatically feed my writing. And and so when I say send yourself into the unknown, I'm fully aware that not everyone can just stop their life and go somewhere for two weeks. But if you're someone that wants to go to a writer's open mic, try going to one the next town over. Try visiting a library 20 minutes away where maybe people there don't, they don't know your work. They might not be familiar with you, like a chance to fully put yourself in a brand new situation. That is both difficult, can be emotional, really stressful, and that's still all the more reason to do it. Mm, yes, yes, and yes. It feels like whenever I go on retreat and whenever I lead a retreat and I see the effect that other women have on each other and a new place has on them. It's like, I liken it to you're a fish typically in the water that you're swimming in. I forget who great gave that great commencement address about the water you're swimming in and then going to a retreat or residency or just somewhere trying something different, stepping into the unknown is like, being able to stand on the shore or in a totally different place and go, oh, that was the water I was swimming in. I didn't even realize, but now I can look at it from a different perspective. And oftentimes when we go to a new place, we end up writing about where we just came from or our our daily lives because we're able to step out of it and see it from a 30,000 foot viewpoint or we're surrounded by such new landscape and shapes and people that our creativity is just like, whoosh. <laughs> yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I will say even from the, the snakes that I encountered in Arkansas, <laughs> the 90 degree heat in Arkansas, a gorgeous world-class museum called Crystal Bridges. I just came away sort of with this this love story with this place that I had really written off a place that I had sort of made these assumptions. I mean, even my Uber driver in Arkansas, she picked me up and she said, yeah, you know, a lot of people, they just, they show up here thinking that we're all sitting on our front porch playing banjos. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's like, don't get me wrong. If you drive farther, you know, far enough, you maybe you'll find that, but there's really so much more here. And I just think if it scares you a little bit, if it feels like it's going to be hard, that's still all the more reason to do it. You know, I, I, I left my, my life and my two young children for two weeks to go and write and, and be in this space. And I actually got the best advice from my husband who said, Kelly, it's going to be a challenge for you. It should also be a challenge for us. Mm. You know, so there's this understanding that there's a lot of you have to have a lot of support in place to do something like that. And yet I still recommend it over and over. Any chance that you get, even if it's a day retreat, even if you hop on a train and go send yourself to write in a destination you haven't written in before, that that will creatively feed you in ways that are unexpected. If you're always used to writing on your laptop, 
try writing longhand. If you only write in the mornings, try an exercise where you wait for the sun to go down. You light some candles, you try writing in the dark. You, you finding these ways to step fully outside of all those regular comforts is so important. And making the time to do it is important. Allowing yourself the luxury of doing it is important too. And I know I say that from a very privileged place. You know, it took me a long time in my writing career to be able to afford to do things like this. Mm -hmm. And so it's still all the more reason, you know, for writers out there to know you deserve to do things like this. I encourage you to explore those options. Mm -hmm. Every retreat that I go to or facilitate, one of the biggest hurdles that the writers have to overcome, regardless of their financial means is, is it okay? that I step away from my own life? Am I worthy and deserving to make this time for myself and my creativity? It does take a lot of inner work to agree for yourself that it is worth it to step away, whether for half a day, a full day, a weekend, a week, two weeks, to kind of finally come to a place where you nod along and you say yes. And I think just one experience solidifies it for people. Like if you can just get yourself past that first hurdle, you come back and your people are like, oh my gosh, what happened to you? And you're, you're so full of it that you're just like bubbling over and it becomes this thing where you go, am I to, yes, I am worthy of this and I need to do this regularly if I can. And that's why I'm also so grateful that there are so many fellowship opportunities and financial aid opportunities and some places have work trade opportunities. Yes. And I recommend explore all of those, throw your hat in the ring for all of those, apply for those things with, with wild ambition and know that there's a place for you there and that they want writers from all different walks of life. And, and to go back to what we spoke of earlier about the things we want to model for our children, I want my children to see all the things that the world can offer. And if that means that they might go to sleepaway camp, and if it means that they might study abroad or take a trip with their grandparents, that's going to involve my children putting some distance between me and them, right? You know, if they're going to be brave enough to go to college on the East Coast, if they want to study in Italy, I want them to be ready to do it. And it helps if they've seen me go out and do that a little bit too. Mm -hmm. So I, I will say that I kind of look at it as I want them to not be sort of gripped by that fear and panic of, well, I've never been there. Well, I don't know what to expect. What if I don't know anybody? And I mean, I literally went somewhere where I didn't have a car. There was no emergency contact. If anything happened in Arkansas, I was my own emergency contact. So, I mean, there's all these things that you're sort of grappling with. And that's part of that process, mm -hmm. sitting in that discomfort, being okay with it, still doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. And such a good point that what you do is not only for yourself, but it's a model for people around you, which I, I often miss. I, I kind of forget about the fact that our children are looking at us for permission that they themselves can go off somewhere. And I, I said to Gio the other day, I said, buddy, he was talking about school. He's such a smart kid that sometimes school, it's just, he's, he's like, I'm bored or this or that. And he said, mom, how much schooling did you have to do? How many years? <laughs> and I told him about college and then I told him about <laughs> grad school. And he was like, wait, there's school after college. And I yep. said, you know, it's, it's all a choice, but the, here's what I did. And he said, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. And I said, you know, buddy, 
One of my biggest regrets, though, is that I didn't study abroad anywhere. I didn't think it was even an option for me. And I said, I didn't study abroad. And I do hope that if you, whatever college career path you choose, if you choose that path, consider studying abroad in another country because it's so rich for your your brain. And he said, you know, mom, I think that's a good idea. I think I know where I'll go. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, Italy. And I said, really? Why is that? And he said, the pizza. <laughs> and I was like, oh, geez. <laughs> he's he's on to something there. And I, and I will say, like, if it scares you a little bit, all the better. Your kids should see you do things that you're scared of, yeah. you know? We're going to encourage our kids to like try out for a team or run for student council or study abroad in Italy. Are they seeing us tackle our own fears in that way? Are they seeing us be nervous and yet try it anyways, right? Just Mm -hmm. go for it. Just have that sort of wild ambition with it. I say, why not? And I would love to come and visit Gio in Italy (laughs) while he's enjoying pizza and going to college. How magnificent. Right. Exactly. Well, you're talking about a model. I think that you are such a model of a writer who really faces challenges and allows themselves to sit in discomfort and creates a new path in a new way and deals with what every writer deals with, which is rejection and keeps on going and tries new things and puts themselves out there. I think you really are someone who continues to put themselves out there. So I'm so grateful that you came on today. You're such an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. And I I will say, you know, I've wasted a lot of years not writing and I've written a lot of bad things that eventually sort of led me to start writing better drafts. But for anyone out there, all of the things that we've talked about today are absolutely possible for anybody that wants to try. You have to be brave enough to try and you have to sort of put yourself in the writing community. A lot of these residencies and fellowships I found on Twitter. I found on Poets and Writers website. I found because I'm on great newsletter email lists. So stay in the writing community, be present and know that this is not something you have to go at alone. Your community is everything with nurturing you to keep going forward. And I'm often, my success is often tied to the fact that I was deeply inspired by something that another writer did. This is not envy. This is, I'm so in awe of what this person accomplished. I wonder Mm -hmm. if I could do it. I wonder if I just tried. And sometimes that's enough. And I'm, I'm pleased to be at the point in my life where I'm ready to try and not just sort of reject myself outright and say, oh no, that, that would never happen for me. Like, there's no way there's not a shot in hell. No, actually, why the hell not me? Right? Like you have to sort of be willing to flip that switch and sort of have this naive belief in yourself. Who knows? It could absolutely work out. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I fully, fully agree. I'm so happy that you're in Writer Workout and I love our community. And you keep talking about this testament to community, community. It's one of the things I cherish the most is our community of just such not only talented writers, but really kind people and brave women, really brave women who continuously put themselves out there. So I'm so happy you're a part of it. I'm so happy we're all inspiring each other. You all are inspiring each other. And I'm just, I I feel lucky every day that we get to be part of this community together. So 
Thank you. Again. Thanks so much. <laughs> oh, thank you, Nadine. This was so fun. So wasn't that conversation so inspiring? It is such a reminder for all of us writers to try something new, to join a community, to set goals for ourselves, to push past rejection, to persevere. And I hope that it inspired you. If it did, let Kelly and I know. You can take a screenshot and you can tag us both on Instagram. I'm at needing Kenny Johnstone. She's at Kelly Q Anderson. You can tag us both and let us know what takeaways that you really loved from the episode. Another inspiring person in this world is my podcast producer, Michelle Rado. Thank you so much for all of your work on this show. And remember everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week.